Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Helen Clark, is a candidate to become the next UN Secretary General. She's the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, serving from 1999 to 2008, and is currently the head of the United Nations Development Program. We spoke in mid-July as part of a series of conversations I'm having with the candidates in the race to replace Ban Ki-moon when his term expires at the end of the year. You can find each of these conversations at globaldispatchespodcast.com. And what I'm trying to do with these candidate conversations is not terribly different from what I do with a podcast each week, which is to discuss with foreign policy thought leaders and newsmakers some of the big events and ideas and experiences that shape their worldview from an early age and guided their career in global affairs. And often in the process, we have digressions about historic foreign policy events along the way. So the goal with these candidate conversations is to learn how some of their past experiences might inform the kinds of decisions they would make as secretary general. And so to that end, Ms. Clark discusses growing up on a farm in New Zealand in the shadow of World War II, becoming politicized in high school and university around the anti-apartheid movement, her decision to enter politics, and some of the big foreign policy decisions she made as prime minister. If you're new to the podcast, if this is your first time listening, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get our app, subscribe on iTunes. It's all free. You can also get in touch with me using the little contact button. And if you're one of the thousands of people who listen to this podcast each week, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues and, and making Global Dispatches into a force in, in international affairs. I appreciate it. And now here is my conversation with Helen Clark. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Been on, I think, New Zealand radio now a couple times to talk about you and, and your candidacy, which is probably two times more than I've been on, say, Slovenian radio to talk about Danilo Turk. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of just wondering, where do you think, or how are you channeling this apparent excitement and enthusiasm for your candidacy that is coming from New Zealand, coming from your, your fellow countrymen? New Zealand is very excited about the candidacy. It's uh, been something that's been warmly welcomed and backed from right across the political spectrum. And uh, you will get a lot of interest from Kiwi media. A number of them are, are following it e extremely closely. I know. So that, that, yeah. it's all good to have the what I call the stadium of four plus million uh, cheering you on. <laughs> yes. And, and Lord, I see as well, the other most famous New Zealander. 
Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I was able to welcome Lord to my office at UNDP a couple of years ago. So uh, we are personally acquainted. Yes, I saw that as you announced your, your candidacy, she wrote like a very enthusiastic tweet saying she's all in for you. Very nice. Um, so I suspect a lot of New Zealanders obviously know your personal story, obviously having had a long and distinguished career in New Zealand politics. But I, I would love to learn more, and I think for a more general audience, more about you and, and where you came from and how some of experiences in your life may shape your performance as Secretary General. So uh, I suppose we'll start at the very beginning. So where were you born? What what sort of family were you born into? Well, my life's an open book, uh, and certainly in New Zealand, people are very well acquainted with the story. I was born into uh, a family, a farming family, uh, in the Waikato region of New Zealand, which is around 100 miles south of Auckland, uh, the largest city. I went to a little four-room country school for my primary education, and then to a boarding school in Auckland itself. What kind of farm and was it? It was a sheep and cattle farm uh, and in the hill country. So, of course, I'm well acquainted with all kinds of farm work that go with that from you know, rounding up sheep and, uh, and, and uh, helping in the shearing shed and haymaking and those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, from the time I went to Auckland for secondary schooling, uh, when I, just before I was 13, uh, I really made my life in Auckland. I went to the university in Auckland and I began my political career in Auckland and stayed as an Auckland Member of Parliament right through until the end of 2000. Uh, well, 2008, I ceased being Prime Minister. 2009, I resigned from Parliament and came up to UNDP. Well, well, so living uh, and, and working on the farm as, as a child, I mean, were, were politics, were, were foreign policy much in your orbit? I mean, were, were there family conversations about the issues of the day? Oh, yes. My family was interested in politics uh, and different parts of the family had the whole spectrum of political attitudes. Uh, with respect to the world beyond New Zealand, New Zealand was very connected. Uh, New Zealand had uh, had major involvement in, in two world wars, and that was very much part of the, the family story. My grandfather fought in France. Uh, ten great uncles uh, fought uh, across France, Belgium, and at Gallipoli in Turkey. And then in World War II, my father's older brother was uh, in the Solomon Islands as a, as a New Zealand soldier. So there was a great interest in my family in, in what was happening offshore. Uh, people had had enough of war, I can say that. Uh, but it, it was a defining experience for my grandparents and parents' generation. Of course, as children, we grew up knowing that and hearing about it. Uh, and, and how did sort of those conversations um, early in, in, in your childhood affect how you, you sort of saw the world? Like, do you remember any specific moment as a child um, that made you think about, you know, how the world works or, or maybe challenge some assumptions you had uh, about the world? Well, some of the relatives had very searing experiences. Uh, my one uncle by marriage uh, had been a a prisoner of war in prison camps. This you know, was a pretty pretty torrid uh, experience. So I grew up really with a predisposition to look for peaceful solutions to problems because I've seen that the scars left on my own family you know, for great uncles who didn't come back from the First World War. Really in New Zealand, you saw a generation of, of, of 
of men, uh, very severely depleted from that, that war. And World War II took a heavy toll too. So it did set me up for a life of arguing for ways of negotiating and mediating through difference and conflict rather than fighting it out. Um, so you uh, said you, you made sort of the transition from sort of the bucolic uh, farm life to, to Auckland um, as, a, as a, a student, is that right? As a high school student. As a high school student. Boarding, boarding school in Auckland, yes. What was, I mean, how did, I have to imagine, and, and uh, forgive me, I mean, I don't know New Zealand terribly well, but going from a rural environment to an urban environment uh, must have sort of put you in contact with different kinds of people, different ideas uh, than you hadn't seen before. That, that is true. My, my family were largely a rural family, and then you go into an urban setting. Probably the, that had the most marked uh, impact when I went on to university where you got exposed to a wider range of debates and issues than you would have had come up over the family dinner table. After uh, all, I went to university at the time of the Vietnam War uh, when the anti-apartheid movement was gaining strength, uh, when there was uh, enormous uh, debate about the French nuclear testing in the, in the South Pacific. So these, these were quite you know, turbulent times in, in foreign policy debate. Um, when you're in, in university, how did you engage like some of those issues, like the Vietnam War issue or the French nuclear testing issue or, or anti-apartheid? Did you have any sort of experience in, in sort of you know, working directly with those issues? Oh, sure. You know, there were uh, on the Vietnam War and on uh, anti-apartheid uh, a, lot of, a lot of protests. Uh, a lot of demonstrations and I was uh, I think in my third year at university on the committee at the University Students Association for Halt All Racist Tours <laughs> which was a, a campaign against uh, uh, white only uh, teams playing from New Zealand and South Africa and from South Africa and New Zealand. Oh, like, like so, sort yeah. of like rugby play? Like, oh, yeah. So like a white-only rugby team would play New Zealand and you tried to, to stop New Zealand from playing, like the, all, oh, there, the, the there, ironically there named huge, All Blacks from playing There were playing huge campaigns across team. Britain, yeah. New Zealand and Australia against the apartheid mm -hmm. uh, teams, huge demonstrations. It, it, uh, and it was you know, one of the many, many parts of the global movement against apartheid. So was that your your sort of first real interaction with with politics was was at, in 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 university as part of the anti apartheid movement? Pretty much directly, yes. And then what happened was, you know, having spent several years involved in in the civil society activity, I concluded that you really needed to be politically active to. Uh, to make a difference, to be in a party that might make a, a difference and work for the election of that party. So that's when I turned my attention to party political activity and, and away from, you know, sort of prioritizing the, the social movements, if you like. Was there a specific moment um, that you remember or a conversation you had with, with someone that um, crystallized that that particular uh, idea that you know getting engaged in politics and not necessarily uh, simply pressing from the outside is, is a way to make a meaningful difference. Uh, the, the tipping point for me was 1969 when the incumbent government won a fourth term in office, and this was the government whose policies we as young people at the university didn't agree with. So it was clear to me that I had to then 
<laughs> come, you know, really into more formal uh, political party participation to to you know to work on that. And and how did you end up joining the party? How did, how did that, that? And and you were still in in university at this point. I mean, uh, oh yes, yes. No, I was still in university. Uh, in fact, I spent you know, fourteen years of my life uh, affiliated with the University of Auckland. I was not only a student there but also a teacher. Well, can, can we talk a little bit more about your uh, academic life uh, uh, a bit, and and sort of uh, learn a little bit more about what you studied and and what how you became interested in what you were studying? When I first enrolled at the university, I enrolled in history and in political studies, as well as German and, and English. But my interests were very much in the history, political studies, international affairs areas. So I majored in history and political studies, and then I did my master's degree in political studies. Did you write a, a thesis? I did write a thesis. It what was, was on um, uh, rural political behavior, and it was based on sample surveys uh, of rural voters. Uh, what did you conclude? I have to imagine that's probably something that, that uh, an experience you might draw on as, as later as director of uh, the UNDP. Um, <laughs> but, oh, but, well, I mean, I mean it, it probably to this day remains you know, the, the most in-depth exploration of rural political attitudes in New Zealand. So well, what I, did you I was find? definitely proud of the thesis. Well, you know, really, there, there was a distinct you know, rural perspective on, on events. Uh, I mean, you know, you're talking about a thesis that I wrote more than 40 years ago now, so I'd have to go back and, and have a look at the findings, but it, it was a significant piece of work. Um, so parallel, but then, then you decided to, to teach on a bit and, and teach in history and politics? I, I taught in the political studies department for eight years. Uh-huh. Uh But all the while, you said you were uh, becoming politicized. Uh, and, and so how... How were you recruited into the into the party, or how did the how did you you sort of come to the party, and, and how did the or how did the party come to you? Well, after the '69 election, you were looking for ways to be more more effective, I guess, and having voice about what was happening. So you you look at the party that most represents your views, and in fact, you know, is saying the sorts of things that that you'd like a party to be saying and standing for. So that uh, took me to the New Zealand Labour Party, which I was then a member of from around uh, 1971 uh, on and became uh, a prime minister representing that party for nine years. So how um, how was that first election? Um, what were your uh, what were your your experiences? What was did you do you remember like a specific campaign platform that you had that that first time around? Well, in, in politics, normally people do an apprenticeship. So I I ran uh, 41 years ago as a, as a very young person in a rural electorate where my party didn't have any chance of election whatsoever, but somebody has to stand. <laughs> uh, so so that, that was a good experience, you know, of, of, of campaigning in an electorate where most people didn't agree with you, actually. But uh, there were people who did. And, uh, you know, it was, it was good to work with them and learn a lot about campaigning. Uh, then when I uh, did run successfully for Parliament in 1981, I, I, I successfully campaigned there for 10 elections and uh, that obviously had a lot of experience in, in campaigning and bringing teams together and, you know, promoting the party manifesto. When you first entered politics uh, and, and first, uh, you know, uh, served uh, in Parliament in, in 1981, how widespread was female political participation in New Zealand? 
Well, women had had the vote in New Zealand since 1893, the first country in the world where that happened. Uh, the first woman wasn't elected until the 1930s. And when I was first elected, the numbers of women in the parliament of 92 uh, doubled from four to eight. Oh. So we were a very, very small group. And uh, so it, it was quite a battle to, to be accepted because the, the women were very much the exception, not the rule in constituencies. But, you know, that, that changed, you know, started to change reasonably fast from, from then on. Well, what, what sort of tactics or, or um, uh, experiences did you try to, 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 to do uh, in order to become accepted? I mean, it, it, it was sort of a rarity back then. Um, how did you position yourself uh, as, as someone who is sort of able to, to break the mold? Well, when you're running to be a local constituency candidate, uh, you need to be able to identify with the hopes and aspirations of, of local people. And uh, in New Zealand, as I guess anywhere, people want a, a roof over their head. They want enough income. They want the kids to be well educated. They want the health system there when they're there. They want you know, a social security system there when, when things aren't going so well and, and when you're old, you know, the pension's important. So I represented a inner suburban, um, you know, lower, lower, low middle income electorate. And those were the bread and butter issues. I mean, as, as a, a woman and as a trailblazer, a uh, female politician, I mean, do you experience sort of any added pressure? Like there is an expectation, uh, expectations from you um, that, that, you know, as a trailblazer, you'll want other women to, to follow in your footsteps. Like, how do you approach that sort of, that, that, that uh, idea of, of trying to break a, a sort of historic precedent? You have to be good at what you do. Now, sometimes you think you have to be three times as good as, as men at what you do. But uh, once women get established in a critical mass in positions, uh, that that then really isn't a factor. But to, to break your way in, to, to kick down the doors that were you know, locked in the way, uh, you have to really... I have a lot of self-confidence and a lot of support behind you. And I, you know, I always had a lot of, a lot of people behind me, not only my family, but strong teams of supporters. Um, so in, uh, in your position in parliament, my understanding is you took up a foreign policy, uh, uh, position, uh, at some point in, in your career. What was it? What were some of the foreign policy issues that you were dealing with, um, in, in parliament at that time? Well, when I first entered Parliament, I did become a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, among among other committees. Um, at the time, this was early 1980s. Uh, uh, the Falklands War was, was, you know, still hanging over. Uh, there uh, were issues about the uh, you know, cuts in the, the foreign uh, service budget. Um, yeah, there were. It, it was still the height of the Cold War, <laughs> so there were all those those kinds of issues. Well, how did New and Zealand then, experience sort of the the politics of of the Cold War in, in that time? Well, New Zealanders uh, became very committed to a nuclear weapon free world. That that was a, a growing and powerful issue in the early 1980s. And uh, when the Labour government was elected in 1984, one of its big promises was that uh, it, it, it would not 
you know, didn't want to be defended by nuclear weapons. It wouldn't accept the presence of nuclear weapons in its harbours or mm. or territories. So really for New Zealand to this day, you know, being a nuclear-free country is a, is a defining issue and it's seen as a statement about, you know, wanting to work for a world that's more peaceful. Uh, and at, at that time, though, didn't that put New Zealand in somewhat, you know, conflict with its ally, the United States, who, you know, did, you know, and does have sort of nuclear armed vessels in, in the South Pacific? Yes, it, it did create some issues, for sure. Uh, but, there are many aspects to countries' relationships, and uh, one of the tasks I had when I was Prime Minister many years later uh, was to work on rebuilding the relationship with the United States so that the first point that was raised wasn't that we happened to have a different opinion on that particular issue, because there were there's so many things that the you know the countries uh, really had had very common positions on. So. You know, really, really, I see my life as one of being. How do you find common cause with people around around issues that need attention? Um, so, uh, how um, how how did you decide to stand for uh, prime minister? Uh, can you talk me through through that process uh, a little bit? And I suppose it, it might also suggest to listeners how you made the decision to accept your country's nomination uh, to become secretary general as well. But, but maybe take us back a, a few years to your decision to be, to, to stand for prime minister. Well, generally in New Zealand, prime ministers are very well established uh, parliamentarians. Uh, they've been around, people know them. They've got the confidence of their, their party group. And so there comes a point when it becomes realistic to mount um, a bid to be elected the party leader. And I did that in 1993 and, and was successful. So uh, then I spent six years as leader of the opposition, which was uh, quite a tough time uh, because you're trying to take your party into government. Uh, and there's you know other people who want power too, so they're... They're very opposed to that. But I became Prime Minister after those uh, six years and uh, then was fortunate to have nine years in office. Um, and, and during your prime ministership, like, what do you consider some of the big, say, foreign policy uh, accomplishments of, of New Zealand and of your administration during those times? Um, well, for, for those times, because one of, one of the first issues that that hit uh, under two years into my period of being Prime Minister was 9-11, which was so devastating. And uh, that led you know, New Zealand to do things we'd probably never have imagined doing, like sending special forces to Afghanistan and eventually a provincial reconstruction team and having you know, Navy vessels as part of the uh, naval con- uh, coalition in the, in the, in the Gulf. So those those were quite well, preoccupying how, issues. How how um, can you walk me maybe through your 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 decision to send special forces to Afghanistan? Because you know early in the conversation, and I know just just knowing a, a bit about you, how committed you have been to peace and peace issues. Uh, yet here you are now in a position of authority, and and you're sending special forces in, into a, a combat zone, or at least in, into Afghanistan. Um, did you have sort of any sort of reconciliation that that went on sort of internally within you and in, in how you made that decision? No, because uh, while I'm very much for promoting peace and dialogue, uh, I'm not a pacifist. 
there are times when there is no alternative to the use of force. You know, force against Nazism and the genocide they perpetrated is an obvious example. And uh, with terrorism, uh, generally you know, people aren't the talking kind. So uh, when there was a need to do something about Al-Qaeda, uh, New Zealand didn't hesitate on that. Uh, but but you never personally hesitated or or um, had a moment of no. Of I, I, on I was the prime minister. We 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 didn't hesitate. We looked at the issue very carefully and decided it was it was the right thing to do. Does New Zealand still have forces in in Afghanistan as part of the the NATO coalition? Well, pretty much uh, that that has drawn down. Uh, I'm not acquainted with what's there mm-hmm. now. There may mm-hmm. be some some training people. I I really don't know. Um, so we just have a few minutes left, but I'd, I'd love to learn um, how you sort of came to decide that you wanted to run the UN Development Program. Um, where where did that sort of decision come from, uh, and and sort of where did your thinking come from on that? Well, when I ceased being Prime Minister, I felt that I had achieved everything I wanted to achieve at home. Uh, but I still felt I had a lot of years to you know, to give with the talents and experience that I have. So when the position for UNDP administrator was advertised, uh, I thought, why not? You know, this this would draw on all the experience I've had in in public policy. And indeed, coming to UNDP, I found that everything I'd ever done on economic and social strategies and climate change and disaster risk reduction, uh, everything really was was relevant to the kind of work which UNDP did. Is there any specific example from New Zealand that you recall uh, applying to the UNDP? Like any any specific lesson that you learned as prime minister that, that you took with you? Well, I think one of the hallmarks would be transparency. New Zealand is a very transparent country. It's had an official information act in force for, for decades. Now, when I came to UNDP, I found it was a rather inward-looking, old-fashioned organisation that, that didn't share information. And this was becoming a source of aggravation with key partners like the Global Fund to fight uh, HIV, malaria and TB and the European Union, which were putting hundreds of millions of dollars each through UNDP but had no entitlement to see the audit reports. So I said this was really quite unacceptable. And we turned UNDP around and uh, for the last two years running have been rated independently uh, as the most transparent aid organization in the world, more transparent than USAID, Challenge Corporation, World Bank, everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's been a a signature achievement. And and I should say for for, uh, listeners who don't follow the UN as closely as say you do or or I do, um, one of your signature um, um, accomplishments was a sort of shift in the staff structure of USAID uh, in which more staff are in the field and and fewer staff are are back at headquarters. But I, I just have to imagine Imagine that that um, you know, knowing how the UN bureaucracy works, that that must have been a very heavy lift. And uh, I suppose there were probably parties that were displeased with um, some of the results. How did you sort of manage those those conflicts? Well, it, it is a heavy lift, but uh, at the end, I think we're a more resilient organisation. Uh, where you see that there's duplication and a, a range of other issues. Uh, which leak money because you may have too many managers, you may have inefficient processes. You have to deal with it. You've got a duty to deal with it. It has to be remembered that every penny 
that goes through UNDP is voluntarily raised. There are no compulsory contributions from member states. So you must keep the confidence of your partners. And the confidence comes from knowing that this is a well-oiled machine. So I must say we have had tremendous support from our partners, including the United States, uh, for the changes that we've we've carried out in the organization and for the transparency. Uh, so we just have a, a minute left, but I finally wanted to ask a, a bit about your, your campaign strategy. I mean, how would you define your, your campaign strategy? Because it's sort of awkward um, for, for those of us observing the process because, you know, you have been very public and out there. You're doing this interview with me, but there's also ultimately just sort of five parties that you need to, to convince. Uh, so how are you sort of managing um, the sort of dual obligations of, of mounting a public campaign, but also sort of privately engaging with, with the P5? The first principle of the campaign has been transparency. So the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs has maintained a website. It says where I'm going, where I've been. Uh, you know, we, we, we keep people up with what we're doing. We use Twitter a great deal for that, to say here's, here's what's happening. Uh, of course, I've been very public about all the visits I've made to Security Council Capitals. Uh, I meet in New York with uh, permanent representatives, both one-on-one and in groupings. And there are the the public encounters like the General Assembly uh, one and then the Al uh, Jazeera-hosted debate uh, the other night. So basically, the hallmark of the campaign is transparency. Mm -hmm. People have a right to know how you're going about this. So will you, uh, to that end, after the straw poll uh, happens on Thursday, will you be informed of the results of the straw poll and, and will you sort of share those results? Well, my understanding is that the results are not divulged publicly. That's the Security Council's decision. Uh, candidates will be told one-on-one -on -one what their vote is. And I'm sure that candidates, uh, I certainly will, uh, will respect the confidentiality of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Ms. Clark, thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's been fun, uh, watching your, your campaign. I know, like, as I tell New Zealand radio, you're, you're the, the, the people's candidate, the people's favorite for sure. <laughs> There's a, there is like a, a lot of, of excitement, um, I see from civil society around your candidacy. And so it's been a lot of, uh, fun for me, at least on the outside to, to watch. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Great. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Helen Clark and her team for making her available to speak with me. Uh, it was great. You know, she is someone who is uh, very well known around the UN and obviously very well known in New Zealand, but I didn't know a lot of her backstory. And so I was fascinated to hear directly from her about some of her life experiences and, and career experiences that we might expect to influence how she comes to the job of Secretary General. Uh, just a quick note before I go, we have some advertising spots, some sponsorships available in the coming months. If you're interested at all in supporting the podcast and sponsoring the podcast and reaching our highly engaged audience of thousands of global affairs enthusiasts, uh, hit me up uh, via the website, via the contact button, and uh, I'll let you know uh, about our ad specs. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.